I'll see what's up with that as soon as we can. <coughs> You're listening to WCBN-FM in Ann Arbor, and uh, the program is Gray Matters. Jim Dwyer here doing a solo program. Dick Whaley enjoying the summertime concert festival scene, and he's on the road today uh, from, a, I think, a return trip adventure. Uh Obviously, uh, lots to talk about regarding uh, Iran today, and that will really uh, be the bulk of uh, today's material that I'm going to cover. But uh, I do also want to comment briefly on the sort of minor flap politically, but a, sort of a major deal culturally about the uh, Elgin marbles. And so we'll save some time at the end of the program to comment about that. As a literature teacher, I would be remiss in... Uh, passing up on this opportunity to comment on that situation. But before we get to uh, events, tumultuous events in uh, Iran, a few small items that uh, are worthy of uh, our attention here at the uh, beginning of the program. Uh, first of all, I guess uh, I'll have to uh, give a grudging thumbs up here in lieu of a brain damage award year or so ago, I gave a brain damage award to the city of Ann Arbor's uh, rather bizarre approach to uh, dismantling or removing, rather, the uh, dead ash trees around town. And uh, finally, uh, there's a replanting program uh, in place. And I just want to uh, pass this on to listeners. Uh, Judy McGovern writing in uh, Sunday's Ann Arbor News. Uh, Ann Arbor is launching a significant new replanting program this fall to add roughly 1,000 new trees every year. Uh, I've always lamented the uh, irony of the fact that this town, named for, for trees, um, has actually treated them fairly poorly uh, through at least the 20 years that I've lived in town. However, uh, this initiative, half a dozen years after the die-off of once plentiful ash trees, uh, is, is underway. The city's going to use aerial photographs to identify uh, more pronounced holes in Ann Arbor's tree canopy and concentrate on those spots. 
if you want to replant right away, homeowners uh, who want to do so can obtain a free permit and have an approved nursery install replacements. The cost is tax deductible, so it's not quite free, but you will be able to get uh, some of that back. Uh, information is available at the city's website, and that's www.a2gov.org, and choose forestry in the uh, window labeled government. And uh, this is a, a late effort to replace over 5,000 ash trees uh, that have since perished. So good job uh, to the city getting some something in place to reforest uh, tree town. Uh, well, another cultural uh, note here. I mentioned the Elgin Marbles already. We'll get to that later. But uh, I would also like to acknowledge the passing of uh, a true giant in world music, Ali Akbar Khan, the uh, legendary Sarad player, uh, passed away over the weekend. Uh, he was 87. Um, once, of course, uh, world music uh, kind of broke with the advent of the Beatles' interest in the sitar. Uh, there was widespread interest in Indian classical music, of course, uh, Ravi Shankar at the forefront of uh, that movement. He often performed with and recorded with Ali Akbar Khan. In fact, uh, if memory serves, uh, both appeared uh, together at the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967. And if you've never seen the film of that uh, Monterey Pop Festival, it's really worth checking out. Um, Particularly that performance, the Ravi Shankar performance, uh, you have to watch it realizing that for almost everybody in that audience in 1967, even though it was California, grooving happened in California, that was probably the first time that most of the people in that audience had had the chance to witness firsthand a performance of Indian classical music and the degree of excitement and I'll say it, ecstasy that uh, appears on the audience members' faces. You can just see it overcoming their body in waves and uh, just a, a tremendous sense of joy that comes from the audience reaction to the performance at Monterey Pop Festival of uh, Ravi Shankar and Ali Akbar Khan, uh, Sarad player, dead at age 87. I'm sure there'll be a lot of his music coming your way this week on uh, WCBN. Uh, well, another truck bomb in Iraq, uh, this in the northern part of Iraq, so any semblance of stability is uh, uh, ever fleeting. This is a truck bomb exploding as worshippers left a Shiite mosque in northern Iraq, killing more than 70 people, wounding nearly 200 in the deadliest bombing in nearly two months. American troops have already begun withdrawing uh, from inner-city outposts in uh, Mosul, Baghdad, and other urban areas. Uh, but this northern region, of course, has uh, been a problem for, well, the entire uh, get-go of the ill-advised, uh, ill-conceived, and uh, disastrously uh, waged uh, war in Iraq. Um Let's see here. Uh, on a related note, the U.S. has appointed a new general for uh, operations in Afghanistan, a guy named General Stanley McChrystal. Sounds like a science fiction name or some sort of James Bond type superhero. Stanley McChrystal. He's a four-star general with a long history in elite special operations, and he took charge of U.S. and NATO troops in Afghanistan um, at the end of last week. 
Uh, a change that the Pentagon hopes will turn the tide. Oh, how many times have we heard that phrase? In an increasingly violent eight-year war. Increasingly violent and essentially thus far uh, fruitless uh, war uh, of eight years. Um, Afghanistan's really um, never going to settle down. It's only a country by default, as we've observed numerous times here on the program. And uh, it's just, just trouble. Anyway, to continue this brief item, General McChrystal took command during a low-key ceremony at the heavily fortified headquarters of the NATO-led International Security Assistance Force in central Kabul. Uh, McChrystal is expected to take a more unconventional approach to the increasingly violent campaign in Afghanistan, utilizing decades of experience in special operations. Well, that raises questions. What area of special operations does he specialize in, and what will he utilize? Well, time will tell. It's uh, difficult to have high hopes uh, with regards to that theater of operations. Uh, also, of course, uh, ongoing military activity in Pakistan as they attempt, uh, as I noted last week on the program, Pakistan is essentially in civil war. I mean, they're waging war in their own country. There, there's a two-front war inside Pakistan as it fights off uh, al-Qaeda uh, forces, sympathizers, uh, in a number of regions uh, in their own country. So it's a bizarre situation, to put it mildly. Um, but I'll just read this brief item from Reuters, uh, Dateline Islamabad. And again, this is from uh, last... Oh, dear. Here was the... I think this is last Thursday. Um, Pakistan was braced for militant reprisals yesterday as the army conducted softening up operations. That's a lovely phrase. Ahead of an assault on the stronghold of... Baitullah Massoud, the Pakistani Taliban leader, uh, one of al-Qaeda's main allies. Military experts see the showdown in remote South Waziristan as a possible waterloo for al-Qaeda and its allies, as the government has demonstrated a fighting spirit hitherto lacking in Pakistan. Really bizarre language in that little clip. It almost sounds like sporting news. Uh, as uh, the uh, team rallies here to show a fighting spirit uh, in the old softening up operations. Well, we'll keep uh, our ears to the ground on that one. Uh, Waterloo might be a little early for a Waterloo metaphor. Uh, to kind of circle back through this troubled region uh, to the other side of Afghanistan, uh, here's a very interesting item. A military hub begins shutdown. I'm not sure how much attention this is receiving, but this is a fairly significant story, I think, particularly as it uh, impacts the U.S. Uh, actions in Afghanistan. Uh, U.S. air base in Kyrgyzstan, used as a hub for operations in Afghanistan, has started to shut down and will close by mid-August as ordered by the Central Asian state, its outgoing commander said yesterday. The ex-Soviet Republic gave the United States six months from February to shut the Manus Air Base, but U.S. officials have expressed hope Kyrgyzstan may still change its mind. Hmm, I don't know. 
the planned closure could pose a challenge to Washington's plans to send more troops to Afghanistan to boost efforts to defeat Taliban insurgents. Speaking to reporters, Colonel Christopher Bentz dismissed suggestions there was still room for change. Kyrgyzstan announced its decision to close Manas after securing pledges of $2 billion in aid from Russia, which operates its own air base in the country. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I don't really want to spend too much time on this, but it received uh, so much media attention that uh, I guess we have to acknowledge it. But the uh, bizarre and utterly insignificant uh, fly swatting incident... Um, it's not without its humorous aspects. Of course, the Colbert Report has uh, made good uh, field day material out of it. Um, PETA, I think, probably deserves a brain damage award uh, for this. Uh, their response uh, is to send uh, President Obama a device that is more humane than a hand smack. It's a humane bug catcher, a device that allows users to trap a housefly and then release it outside. Come on! I mean, seriously, if you're really that concerned about the uh, repercussions for your own soul of killing and swatting a fly, and I understand, you know, Buddhists may have strong feelings about this, um, but uh, gee, Willikers, folks, there's uh, how many uh, house flies uh, are hatched every day on the surface of the globe? Uh, I. I really wonder about the damage to your soul of uh, swatting at and killing a housefly. I, for one, would simply say that I'm impressed with Obama's hand-eye coordination. Uh, not only do we have a president who likes to read, but he's got good hand-eye coordination, and uh, that, that's a pretty good combination uh, in my book. Um, Maureen Dowd had some uh, interesting and amusing things to say about it, but listeners can uh, look her column up, uh, reprinted in the Ann Arbor News on Sunday on their own. Um, <laughs> humorous, and I guess if, if that's a big deal, well, then I guess it's a little bit of a comic relief. Uh, something that's not particularly comical uh, is a new study showing that drinking-related deaths among students 18 to 24 years old have increased steadily from 1,440 a year in 1998 to almost 2,000 a year in 2005. Uh, of course, here in Ann Arbor, we see it every fall when the college students return, uh, the uh, rush week, the frat parties, the binge drinking. Uh, and, of course, there are other numerous uh, problems associated with the uh, heavy drinking uh, Long-term health effects naturally go without saying, but uh, thousands, hundreds of thousands of uh, sexual assaults are also related to this. Um, most of these don't involve driving, of course, but uh, often lead to uh, bad scenes anyway. And on a related note, the rate of Army soldiers enrolled in treatment programs for alcohol dependency or abuse has nearly doubled since 2003 a sign of growing stress of repeated deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan, according to Army statistics and interviews. Um, Marines, for example, just to scan down the article here, which also appeared in uh, Sunday's uh, Detroit Free Press, this one, uh, Marines who screened positive for drug or alcohol problems increased 12% from 2005 to 2008. So coping mechanisms... Uh, Maybe not the best in that particular 
case, but what can you say? I'm not going to morally judge those guys. Uh, they're under extreme stress. Well, speaking of extreme stress, the situation in Iran uh, continues to uh, get ugly and weird. Uh, of course, uh, picture of a young woman, uh, still a little mysterious, whether she was shot, whether she was beaten, uh, bleeding from the nose and mouth, appeared on numerous front page uh, uh, headline stories uh, about this. Um, it is the summer reading season, as uh, many of us try to catch up on reading that we can't do during the busyness of the academic year. Uh, I'm going to read in just a moment uh, a passage from a book that... Uh, as I, boy, I really can't recommend it strongly enough uh, to listeners. Uh, it's called Lipstick Jihad uh, by a woman named Azida Moaveni. It's subtitled A Memoir of Growing Up Iranian in America and American and in Iran. And this is a book that came out in 2005, I think hit paperback in 2006, if I'm remembering correctly here, yeah. And uh, it's a book I've uh, had, actually, for a little over a year in my possession. Hadn't quite gotten around to it, but the events of last week compelled me to pick this book up. And I'll tell you, it could have been written two days ago. It, it talks about the uh, unrest and the student protests in Iran uh, in the late 90s, 1999, particularly during the uh, first term of the reformist president, uh, Katami. And we've just had such bad luck in uh, syncing up uh, decent, open-minded leadership in this country and in Iran. At the end of the Clinton era, uh, Katami comes in, and uh, Clinton has so many other problems going on. He doesn't really have the uh, political uh, legroom to maneuver a dialogue with Katami. Well, then 2000 Bush comes in. And then uh, Iran votes in Ahmadinejad. And so now we've gotten rid of our Ahmadinejad uh, in uh, President W. And have, as I said before, a, uh, a president who likes to read and discuss and dialogue. And uh, the uh, supreme spiritual leader of Iran, um, Khamenei, not Ayatollah Khomeini, who, of course, was the uh, leading mover and shaker in the Islamic Revolution of 1979, but uh, his successor, Khomeini, uh, has ruled the uh, verdict, uh, a deal ordained by God. And so uh, where we go from here, where the people of Iran go from here, more uh, accurately speaking, uh, is really uh, anybody's guess at this point. And there's a lot of speculation that we could uh, engage in, but... We'll just kind of play it as it uh, continues to unfold. So in a moment, I'm going to read a passage from uh, Moavani's Lipstick Jihad book. But I want to first double back to a uh, column that appeared in the June 15th Financial Times by a woman named Rula Khalaf, uh, who writes a regular column uh, and covers the Middle East uh, for the Financial Times. She's based out of London, and uh, she's uh, got a, a good insight into... Uh, the Middle East, and is, I think, one of the better writers on this region. Um, I'm going to read a few excerpts from this column uh, that she wrote uh, Monday, June 15th, entitled, Dangerous New Era Entered as Result Exposes, Exposes Deep Fissures. Uh, about two paragraphs in, uh, talking about the, you know, alleged voter fraud uh, 
and uh, she kind of details why it looks so funny. Uh, Rula Kalaf writes, Mr. Ahmadinejad's election was not inconceivable, and no one doubts that he has support among radicals in lower-income segments of the population. But the results announced on Saturday, a record turnout of 85%, with 63% of the vote going to the incumbent, defy belief. They would, after all, suggest that many of those in the urban middle class who were mobilized by the Musavi campaign had a mysterious change of heart at the polling booths, casting ballots instead for the man they had so passionately insulted in their nightly rallies. If the outcome is, as Mr. Musavi charges, a dangerous charade, it carries on carries an alarming message of defiance to the president's opponents at home and abroad. Mr. Musavi's support came from armies of educated youth, women, and the business community. Importantly, it was backed by uh, important figures in the Iranian political establishment, uh, Hashem Rafsanjani, uh, chief among them, reformists as well as conservative pragmatists. Well, he would be a conservative pragmatist. Uh, Katami would be the uh, establishment reformist. Continuing, all clamoring to unseat the most radical wing of the regime represented by Ahmadinejad. So the declared results are meant to show a victory for radicalism and deal a resounding blow to those who had questioned the belligerence of the president's foreign policy and accused him of undermining Iran's dignity. That the outcome was backed swiftly by Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, the Supreme Leader, suggests that he too was determined the election should vindicate his support for the president. It also implies that he has no intention of listening more closely to those who have argued that the costs of extremism are too high as well as unnecessary. Though the leaders of the country usually care a great deal about the legitimacy of elections, the cries of rigging that spilled onto the street in the first post-election unrest since the Islamic Republic was formed were addressed through a well-organized crackdown, not a reconsideration of the vote. The vivid, brazen debate of the electoral campaign had illustrated Iranian society's diversity, its thirst for greater freedom, and for more pragmatic management of the economy. These stirrings might have been encouraged by the more conciliatory approach of Barack Obama, the U.S. president. That same approach, however, might have proved far too threatening for the regime. Uh, so where does that take us? Well, as we've seen from the continuing protests and violence and so forth, there's a lot of... Uh, things that Americans don't really uh, understand or appreciate about Iranian history, specifically American-Iranian relations. Obama was uh, roundly criticized by Republicans and, uh, you know, uh, ostriches who wish to uh, keep Americans' heads uh, in the sand when he acknowledged the CIA involvement in the 1953 coup <clears throat> that uh, saw the uh, toppling of a popularly elected uh, nationalist uh, candidate, Mohammad Mossadegh, in uh, support of the Shah, who, of course, ran uh, Iran as an authoritarian camp, uh, doing the will of uh, U.S. power brokers. Uh, and that's, of course, something that most Americans don't really know about or appreciate. But uh, Obama is right to mention that. He didn't apologize for it. He acknowledged it. And it certainly does shape... Uh, the dynamic of uh, American-Iranian relations. Uh, parenthetically, uh, if you're interested in a good book uh, going into more of a historical aspect of the relationship, uh, Barry Rubin has a book that came out, uh, oh boy, in the uh, mid-'80s, I believe, uh, entitled Paved with Good Intentions, the American Experience and Iran. 
it's uh, a fine uh, analysis of the uh, rise of the Islamic uh, Revolution. Uh, well, I'm just going to quickly read uh, here uh, the passage, uh, and I'm rapidly running out of time, uh, from this Lipstick Jihad book, which, again, I strongly recommend. A couple years old, could have been written last week. And so uh, I'm reading here from Azadeh Moaveni, who has, after growing up in California, going to school in Cairo, has moved to Iran as a journalist. And she writes, just, after, uh, just a handful of weeks after my arrival in Tehran, a cousin from California came to visit. Daria and I had grown up together in San Jose, and like me, he was convinced he was entirely Iranian. His friends in America included other second-generation children of Latin American and Middle Eastern immigrants, Latinos and Lebanese, who were born and raised outside their countries of origin and chose to identify with African-American culture in America. His friends called him Persh, short for Persian. They wore their jeans low on the hips and listened to hip-hop, the anger and alienation and rap music, resonating with their own resentment at being the brown-skinned children of immigrants. When Daria showed up in Tehran, he brought with him an M&M-flavored American attitude towards guns and the streets. Cops were bad, the muscle behind a racist system, and people who took their safety into their own hands were good. He noticed the basij on the streets of Tehran, the Islamic vigilante thugs used by the regime to harass people, and concluded they were something akin to the guardian angels. He didn't know they were the regime's shock troops. Uh, parenthetically, I would suggest that there's something like uh, brown shirts or uh, Mussolini's black shirts, uh, fascist thug groups, uh, usually unemployed teens, uh, paid off in petty ways to uh, provide muscle on the street. Um, Daria didn't know that they were the regime's shock troops. Who would suspect that, really? Why should a regime that had a standing army and considerable formal police and security forces also employ a ragged thug militia whose only purpose was the crude harassment of ordinary people? One afternoon, Daria strode into my aunt's living room, paced back and forth between the wooden columns, and announced that he wanted to join the besiege. Those guys have it going on, he said. I went up to one of them today, and he told me they protect the streets. I'm down with that. He was right. He said women get harassed. That's not cool. The author, Azadeh Moaveni, says, stop, stop right there. You don't get it. The besiege are the bad guys. I said, everyone hates them. They don't protect people. They abuse them. They're the ones who break up parties, raid malls. They confiscate music and then listen to it themselves. They sell drugs. They take bribes. They run rackets. My aunt put... Uh, bowl of uh, cantaloupe on the table. Thank God she'd never had children and sat down to watch us argue. Listen, Daria, can I just tell you what happened last night? Listen, and then afterwards tell me if you still want to become a Bisaji. I'd been out with a friend, Nikki, her boyfriend, and one of his friends. Everyone had been raving about a new Chinese restaurant at the mall food court, so we'd gone there for dinner. After eating, we called a taxi to pick us up and were waiting outside on the corner for it to come. As we chatted under the warm evening sky, one of the dark, menacing Land Rovers, driven by the morality police and accompanied by the Basiji, uh, jumped out. The two guys turned to face each other, and Nikki turned to me, our body language giving no indication we knew one another. One of the Basaji walked up to Nikki's boyfriend and asked how they were related. I don't even know who you're talking about, he replied. The Basaji then stepped <clears throat> in front of Nikki, got up within two inches of her face, and repeated the question. I've never seen him before in my life, she said coolly without blinking. Don't lie to me, he hissed. <clears throat> I just saw you standing here together. You must have gotten me mixed up with someone else, she said. It's a busy intersection. 
He tilted his head back towards her boyfriend. So if he's not your boyfriend, if you've never seen him before, you won't care if I punch him, right? And he punched Nikki's boyfriend in the cheek. I felt her body tense next to me, but her eyes didn't flicker. The besiege watched her reaction closely. From behind him, one hand pressed against his face. Her boyfriend shot her a look of warning, don't give us away. The besiege turned back again, and this time he punched him on the other side, on the ear. Nikki exhaled slowly. You can beat him till he's bloody, she said coldly, but I've already told you, and now I'm telling you again, I have no idea who he is. Her voice didn't even quiver. She turned her back on them both and dialed a number on her cell phone. Hey, Maman, yeah, we're still waiting for the cab. Do you need anything from the outside? See you in a bit. <clears throat> By this time, the besiege was livid. Okay, so maybe he's not your boyfriend. Was he bothering you? Because if he was, just tell me and I'll make him pay for it. He stepped closer again, so close he was breathing on her and she moved back. He wasn't. And I don't need anyone, especially you, to hit someone for me. Deflated by his failure to provoke an admission from either of them, the besiege got back in their vehicle and shot up the street. It was, to me, an encounter of shockingly casual violence. I thought Nikki would need months of therapy to recover, and her boyfriend would insist on meeting indoors forever after. Not at all, as it turned out. To them, it was just another Friday night in the Islamic Republic. Young people anticipated these sorts of incidents and had confronted them so many times that they were almost taken for granted. They considered the besiege part of the geography of the city, like the mountain range and the long boulevards. They had perfected the art of inventing and synchronizing stories on the spot, how to predict what sort of policeman would take a bribe, and what sort would respond to a convincing argument. <clears throat> We're just about out of time, uh, but I'll just conclude that passage from Azadez Moavani's uh, Lipstick Jihad by saying that these are the cultural and social forces that the... Revolutionary Guard is up against, and if the supreme spiritual leader wants to declare Ahmadinejad God's hand-picked president of Iran, he's uh, <laughs> he's making an error, and he's going against the uh, the will, and I would say even the very nature of the Iranian people who take Islam seriously, but uh, also want their lives back, and so uh, this democratic uh, movement. Uh, we're going to continue to follow it closely here and uh, hope for the best. Uh, recommend that book. Uh, stay tuned for Yazoo City Calling, and thanks to uh, Andrew for engineering. This is Jim Dwyer signing off for Gray Matters. Hi, this is Emmy Lou Harris inviting you to tune in to the Down Home Show every Saturday from 1 to 4 p.m. on W.